When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. I know absolutely too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. With me, as always, is my co-host, who, to her dismay, knows too much about the Rock Hall at this point, but she doesn't care, so she has to wrestle with that every day of her life via Zoom video chat. It's Kristen Suttered. Hi, Kristen. Hello. Any knowledge is too much knowledge, and I have a lot of it. But every day you, you, you lose a little bit more. It's true. Uh, Got to keep know. that sieve open. Keep the drain <laughs> open. Let the information flow out. Make room for new important information. And you sounded crisp on that AKG microphone. Can you taste the difference, listeners? Ew, <laughs> gross. And I'm sorry. I'm not going to edit it out. So nope. it's going to be in there it forever. Uh, I'm excited to have our guest with us here today. Uh, she is a writer, professor, author of the upcoming book, Liner Notes for the Revolution. It's Daphne Brooks. Hi, Daphne. Hi. How are you guys doing? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I am so excited to have you on the show. Uh, Joe sent me an excerpt from your book, and I was like, it it was it spoke very deeply to my soul and my feelings about uh, the Rock Hall and also about in particular like you hit on so many things in these two paragraphs that I was like oh <laughs> um she really really is speaking straight it, into my feelings uh, it was a, it was a killing me softly moment for you Kristen. it really was okay. you summed my pain trying to evoke your finger yeah. <laughs> well Daphne I want to give you the opportunity to talk about this book and and what it is sure yeah you know I was I originally was working for a long time on a history of black women in popular music culture and it occurred to me after many years of teaching this topic and writing articles related to it that I needed to actually start with the critics. <laughs> I needed to start with the critics and the institutions who actually produce the knowledge and the, as we call it in fancy academic speak, uh, the discourses of taste that define popular music culture. Um, so I came, became very interested in trying to tell this kind of twinned tale of both the historians, the critics, the record collectors, 
i.e. all of the dudes, as the late, great and beautiful David Bowie would sing to us, and the ways that the dudes had related to and defined what's of value in popular music culture. And then the, the parallel part of the tale that's central to the tale is what are the women in the margins and the people of color in the margins and specifically the women of color in the margins of this culture who are making and transforming the culture underneath the radar? Um, how do they tell that story? How, they, how do they tell it through their music, through their artistry, but also through this kind of unregarded and long overlooked history of criticism and cultural critique that the musicians themselves were generating, but also really pathbreaking cultural figures like a Lorraine Hansberry, who was the groundbreaking playwright who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. She was a huge kind of culture wonk who did battle with you know, all sorts of critics from Norman Mailer to uh, name anyone at the New York Review of Books um, during her short and stunning life in, in the late 50s and early 60s. So I want to kind of tell this story of popular music culture through the lens of Black feminist intellectual history. That's the short version of it, but the Rock Hall pops up um, as right. a key villain. Of <laughs> course. Key villain in the book. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it, it pops up relatively early because, yeah. you know, to kind of contextualize what you're about to do, it's brought up that the way we canonize things in America specifically with places like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it is by almost definition through a white male lens. Yes. Yeah. Which is, you know, not rocket science, like in the sense that many people have come for Jan Winner and company. I mean, I have all sorts of beef with Winner, especially because, and I think I make note of this in the book. If not, I've done it in public. I mean, I'm a UC Berkeley alum. I have such a deep kind of complicated relationship to obsessing over rock music criticism that Berkeley was not only a family school, it's where my dad and my mom, who escaped the Jim Crow South in the 1950s, moved to the Bay Area. My dad went to Berkeley, so it was a family school, but it was also a school that, as I became obsessed with rock music criticism, I came to understand is kind of central to the history of rock music criticism since Jan Winter went there, since Grail Marcus, who is a friend and collaborator and mentor, um, I should say mentor, who collaborated in some ways, yeah. So it's, a, it's kind of a key cornerstone place where rock music criticism took flight, where Jan Winner gained power as the co-founding editor of Rolling Stone. And of course, he then becomes central to the building of the edifice that's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I wanted to be able to tell that story, too, about the birth of institution making linked to rock and roll music culture and my fascination with it. And, yeah. you know, it's like institution making and then the gatekeepers therein and kind of who decides what's canon, who decides what's good, who decides what's popular culture, right. who keeps, who holds the keys. And it is usually white and it is usually male. And that has kept people out of even the discourse and it has kept people from being able to become popular even. Right. And it's this kind of unspoken presumption that there are certain kinds of barriers in place in culture that generate the knowledge that we consume about culture itself. And I wanted to kind of lay that bare 
and also bring to the fore the way that the rock hall, even as we might think of it as this antiquated dinosaur exploratorium, still has in place generations of power that's linked to how we think about and how we relate to and how, how we identify what's a value and what's not a value. It's all built on the same structure of white supremacy that, yeah, that much of culture is built upon, that much of American culture, white culture, popular culture, culture at, at we say like popular culture, what we mean is like white American culture in this right. regard, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, it's all built on the same bedrock of white supremacy, mm-hmm. male supremacy, mm-hmm. and it's baked into every mm-hmm. layer of it. And so mm-hmm. to even get at what could have been if people had been allowed more access mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. resources and to the public at large. Right. And if just who knows what could have happened. And then we look back on it. It's with all of history though, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you look back on it and you have to view it through that lens of like, mm-hmm. we are being told based mm-hmm. on all the people who've been in power for so mm-hmm. long. And mm-hmm. so you have to just bake that into mm-hmm. every single thing, especially, and this is even a new institution. I mean, it came mm-hmm. in the 80s. It's right. like, we can really see what it was built upon like centuries of other bullshit. And yes. then just like <laughs> right on top, yeah. just another little layer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also was really interested in trying to think about power through the lens of pleasure. And that's something that I've learned and my studies and scholarship as a Black feminist scholar and critic. I wanted to be able to to go back to that word that we, you know, I keep hitting upon taste to really get closer to the ways that those in power are producing these cultural spaces that are linked to their own pleasures. And that that pleasure is informed by power and privilege. And so what would it mean if we shifted our focus to the folks who are outside of power, right? And have their own pleasures and desires as well. And ironically and weirdly, the story of rock and roll is about those people in the margins producing expressions of what's pleasurable and what's painful to them. And then the people in power consuming that art as pleasurable. Um, yes. Trying to tell the broader tale, you know, of what rock and roll is, is just what I was trying to, to get at. And, and I'm not alone. There are wonderful colleagues of mine who are producing great work like this as well. But this is a moment. This is a moment. 2020, 2021. <sighs> I have to imagine it's your academic focus on Black women in rock that led you to the 2018 Rock Mm. Hall induction ceremony, which you attended in person. Yes. Yes. So I've attended two. So that was the one in Cleveland, right? That's the one Mm -hmm. in which the reason why I traveled to Cleveland is that after many letters that were written uh, by me and by colleagues of mine lobbying for Nina Simone's posthumous induction into Mm. the rock hall that was the year that nina and you know it was a a bonus long overdue bonus that sister rosetta tharp was posthumously inducted that year as well yeah i mean there are and those are two two bright spots of the 2018 induction that was a dark night (laughs) (laughs) like yeah two very long overdue very worthy and interesting and great inductees but that is that was not enough to bring the 2018 induction ceremony out of what I would say that was probably the worst ceremony potentially of all time. I agree. And it got off to a dazzling start, you know, in terms of a nader with Howard Stern inducting Bon Jovi. Yeah. 
that was the structure of the live evening i think right yeah they restructured it because yeah. stern wanted to come go, do go his speech and, and leave and go to bed mm -hmm. and so they said okay you can go up top and then we'll put it want. at the end of the yeah. hbo ceremony yeah yeah and then john bon jovi did his epic grievance um induction and yeah. poor guy i you really know, feel for him we've you know? brought this up many times but especially given that class he is so bitter about yeah. how long he had to wait he had to right. wait he had to wait nine years yeah in comparison to literally every other act absolutely specific and specifically nina simone's sister right. rosetta who could right. have been inducted the very first year right. that the institution that's right existed. that's right that's right the, no it's such a good point the gall yeah the gall that was wild and really sort of interesting. And I, I also recall that Stern did a couple of call outs to Jan Winter not being in the house, if I'm remembering that correctly. Like, he, yeah, because, you was, know, with he the, didn't, the he didn't want Bon Jovi going in. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think there, there had been a leaked comment that Jan Winter was not thrilled uh, <laughs> about the prospects and then eventual induction of, of Bon Jovi, which right. there's there's a place where I agree with Jan Winter for it's sure. True. <laughs> It's true, but therein lies the irony, and this is what I said to my husband as we were leaving the, the venue that night. It really, that year especially marked, it felt like to me, the final turning point in which the Rock Hall was committed to going back to the well as many times for some of the least worthy acts in terms of aesthetic innovation, <laughs> you know, vision, visionary uh, kind artistry, of, you know, yeah. yeah, all of that kind of stuff, that that had gone out the window. And we were just trying to dig as deep as we could to get every white male act now <laughs> before actually addressing the 21st century full-on pivot towards and domination of not just hip hop, but woman dominated pop, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's like, we're going to go back. We're going to do, we're going to start to do hair metal. By the time we get to Def Leppard the next year, we're just, we're going to do everything that we can to Scraping build that wall. it out. Every, <laughs> yeah. We'll get to the bottom of every right. decade first. Yeah, look they up literally rat. will. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's for, like, we're on this next. The rat, you know, we're round and round. Get, They're on yeah. that. Commercial. Exactly. <laughs> we're going to get them all in there. We'll get winger. We'll get yeah. uh, striper. Right? Stripe. Yeah. White snake. <laughs> Exactly. White Snake is Sonic in. Pain, probably coming Cinderella. Yeah, Cinderella. Wow. Yeah. Uh, boy. I'm like just I'm po poison. Actually, I do think that there will come a day that Poison will get not nominated right. or anything like that, but that Poison fans will unite. Joe probably. froze in like the most horrified face <laughs> when I said that. Well, I, I wasn't. I like wasn't. That wasn't a, a technical error. That was actually me. Uh, frozen in time from what you said. I just mean, I don't put it past any, I just don't put anything past. I, I, it's not that I really do think that poison could get in or even be truly considered. It's just like anything is possible. Yeah. I just don't yeah. both good and bad. And I right. keep making these like, well, that is true because Janet Jackson's induction was really kind of fraught for me because there are people who should have been going in before Janet. It symbolized something important in terms of transitions, as did Whitney, but it also seemed misguided in terms of thinking about this longer genealogy that the Rock Hall is not willing to come correct about. 
And it seems to, to have kind of like set up this, we get one black woman every year, period, full stop. There can be no more. Maybe every year. We're lucky. We've been been quote unquote lucky for two years, but you know, who knows? That is the kind of stuff that really is bothersome to me because in order to course correct, you need to do an all ballot of color, like no white artists on the Mm. ballot. And it needs to be over. 50% 50% women. That's like just one badass. year. That's and a then, move, Kristen. That's a move. But I, it's the only yeah. way you have yeah. to start. If sure. you're if you're not going to just abolish sure. the institution, you sure. have to really do something big. Sure. Reform won't work, yeah. is what I'm yeah. going to say when well, it comes to here. And so if they really are serious about making a change or if yes. this really is a big turning point, then yeah. make it huge. Yes. And it doesn't feel like it's, coming anytime soon based on the people that I've talked to within the institution they wow. all seem to be like no we're doing it slowly but surely we're piece. getting there and I'm like not fast enough right um yeah and, and we also need more diverse voices within the nominating committee we do I've I've heard that for years you know and little has changed um I've known a couple of people who've been involved mm-hmm. one of color one not. And it, it just, it feels like kind of a dismal process at this point of trying to transform, right, who makes these kinds of selections. It would be interesting, this, I, you know, model that you proposed, Kristen's making me think about this, it would be so fascinating to have a counter history of the Rock Hall classes each year to imagine the people who could have been inducted based upon their eligibility each year uh-huh. and who yeah. weren't, right? And yeah. see what you come up with. That's also, that could be an episode series for us. I mean, we're yeah. going to run out of stuff eventually. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, I think you won't, but that would be amazing. That would be really amazing. Yeah, like a counter history for like who we would have put in that year. Like rewriting it. Yeah, yeah. I, I should shout out Troy Smith at the Cleveland Plain Cleveland. Dealer has yeah. done- something like that where he's gone Mm -hmm. back and said like okay let's Mm -hmm. see how we could do this and how we could do this right and then kind of proceeded from there that's great there's really no i'm trying to think of a way to do it worse and (laughs) (laughs) yeah although in in fairness you know i know we talked about the the janet and whitney inductions that might be fraught (laughs) with some some issues but when you compare the most recent classes to 2018 was was such a low that I thought it was going to be a free-for-all slide. Like I thought like, oh, this it's over. Right. It's like, over. I felt we, that way too. We yeah. did. We did pivot a, a little bit back up in a, bit, in a better was, direction. I mean, it was really, really, really important to me as a Radiohead super fan to see them go in. That was so weird. They didn't go in the first year. Yeah. According to like just convention and canon building, it was, it was really kind of interesting. Yeah. That was a huge, um, huge although, shock. Although, although, and this gets into charged topics, but I found out after I wrote a piece about the blackness of Radiohead and my ideas about their relationship to to black sonic cultures you and why TV on the Radiohead. Yeah, TV. That <laughs> that be radio. Carlo Park. But I I discovered after I wrote the piece for the Guardian that um, they had a little tussle, and it would have been right around the time of induction time. They were complicated with their reaction to the BDS movement in Palestine. And it just, it was, there were some dividing lines around it. And Tom York made some statements that were quite charged in Rolling Stone. So they just may have been too hot to handle as yeah. 
Rose would say. Sorry. And also the uh, one, one of the <laughs> things that was that was surrounding the possible induction for them their first year was that they were scheduled to perform in South America on the day of the induction. Oh. So although and, we have been told by insiders that that had nothing to do with it, that well, they didn't right. get the votes. Well, but... here my, my thought is like they were probably number six on the list. How is that possible? Which I know you would think <laughs> I, I get and I get the sense like, that the, that and I also think maybe there were a lot of people who were like Radiohead is such a shoe in that I don't need to give them my to vote. do it. Right. I think that might have had a, a, a part, but yeah, I don't know. There, there's a lot of theories, but none of them really add up. Radiohead is, if you want a first year eligible act, like they are primed and ready. Like what more right. could you have wanted? Totally wild. I was happy to see them going the following year, the year that Harry Styles called Stevie Nicks a rock and roll Nina Simone, which I literally <laughs> threw up a little bit in my mouth. But, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, no. Uh, out of curiosity what was the induction that you had been to before that the first one was 2018 and then 2019 was the second one oh, okay okay we were there we were at the 2019 and 2018 is the first one that i ever watched oh, our one, show I'm, had been on for how long had we been just a, show? a few weeks and i was like we'll start this <laughs> podcast and there's uh wow yeah oh and God. it really it really put Kristen in a funk for that, like we're still maybe not out of. <laughs> I had to watch it in two parts. I yeah. really couldn't believe it was still going. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was tough. I think the most, the, the, there was a lovely moment when Rick Ocasek spoke and talked about the distance between getting, mm -hmm. I wanna be careful with this, either starting his career. I, I think that who. that's it. Cause I think yeah, they're a Boston band, but I know right. Ben Orr who ben was Orr with them was Cleveland, a Cleveland right? guy. And right. I think he spent some time and they may have met in Cleveland. Right. And so. Right. So he started his career, you know, marked the place down the street where they had started and to make it there. And it was very lovely. And then I also had issues with, uh, I want to be careful with this. I, you know, I, I appreciated seeing Mary J. Blige on that stage. I was concerned about the ways that Mary J. in the past had talked about her identification with Nina as being wrapped up in a kind of understanding of the pain and injury that Nina Simone experienced in the industry and in life as a black woman, those are all crucial and important things, but it reminded me of Oprah giving Tina Turner the Kennedy Center honors in which she talked about her as a survivor, also crucial. None of these things are not crucial to understanding the history of black women in America, but it took away from, in both instances, being able to talk about artistry, innovation, you know, the kind of uh -huh. pathbreaking impact that someone like Nina Simone had on the history of popular music, how central she is to, to rock and roll history, you know, her alliances with Bowie and the ways that hip hop has taken her up in recent years. My colleague, Salamisha Tillette, wrote a beautiful article about that a while back. So there are a lot of ways to talk about these women as musicians and <laughs> it always seems to go, especially along gender lines and, and also racial lines, you know, what they've overcome. as opposed What they've to, endured, victim, yeah, survivor. What they've, made, what they've built, you know. Yes, rather right. than about what they've built. And that really reminds me again that I have not been banging the inductina as a solo performer drum enough lately. Oh so God. here I go. Bang, bang, so bang. Come the fuck on. I can't so with this. So I'm, true. I really am now, now right. I'm re reignited so, for how so, mad I am about it. Kristen, especially if you go back to Stevie, she can now be inducted twice. 
come on now. She should be, she should have been. It's really upsetting to me that she is forever linked with someone who is so publicly known as her abuser and that people are like, well, she's already in once and she's in with the one that like, you should really hear some of the way that some of the old guard speaks about it. It is very upsetting to me. And she really should be in there as a solo artist. We need more women. We need more living women. We need more black women. So like you got a triple whammy, put her in the double club. Let's go. Just do it. Just do it. And also, you know, I really do think if she got on the ballot solo that she would get in. Oh, absolutely. I think she'd get in right. I just think the minute you put her on the ballot solo, she would get in. I have faith that if Nina were on the ballot and it was between Nina and Poison, it'd be Tina. Sorry, Tina. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it'd be Tina. Yeah, if it was between Tina and Poison, Tina would get in. Oh, absolutely. But if it was between Tina and almost anyone, like I really do believe that she is transcendent as far as her ubiquity, her popularity, Mm -hmm. her artistry. She is known, she is beloved. Put her in as a solo artist is not that hard. Yes. Ooh, I forgot. I really haven't banged that drum in a while. I've been over here talking about Pat Benatar and I forgot about my girl, oh. Tina. You know, wow. gotta, gotta do that. She was on the ballot last year and did not Oh, that's in. right. She's one of the hangovers that, that has not been inducted, right? Yeah. I think they'll probably come back to her now, but that is that's so also wild. That's yeah. absolutely wild. Yeah, I hate if it. You, if you think about her 80s peers who are in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, let's get them go-go's in. Let's do it all. Let's really. Well, the go-go's, I mean, that is, yeah. Evelyn McDonald and I, she who's one of their great profilers. Oh, yes. and, oh, critics, yes. and she, yeah. she's a, right. she's a friend and she's been on yes. the show. And, yeah. Evelyn, I love she's Evelyn. The champion very, very of them. Much. And yeah, that should absolutely happen. It's true. I also think, I'm sure you guys cover this on the show, but trying to be imaginative about who inducts is something that I hope that can be revisited in the future. For instance, Alicia Keys being trotted out for Oh, we talk about this ceremony. We were just talking about how for some reason she inducted Prince and we were like- she did. And here's, I, I have lots of feelings about Alicia, but I think let's just hold it around the fact that I did appreciate her in that context, primarily because if my memory doesn't fail me, she was partnered up with, with, um, Outcast. with Outcast and Outcast nearly threatened to um, torpedo the entire occasion for any variety of reasons between whatever was going on with Andre and Big Boy but uh-huh. also just their, you know, their rejection of certain kinds of formalities that I think is great in rock and roll. Yes. But we needed in that moment Poise. for someone, you <laughs> right. know, who spans the ages in terms of um, genius like Prince to have someone who could deliver a kind of lyrical meditation on, you know, his resonance, his longstanding impact on the radical potentiality of popular music culture mm-hmm. and blackness and popular music culture. And so I thought I was relieved that she did that. And I think um, that's why they go back to Alicia Keys a lot. She's just super reliable. Like, you know, she, she, she can give a great speech. She can. will prepare like, right. you know, you're not. Yeah, she's uh, going to do the group project. You right. know, yeah. it's right. like right. the three of right. them are up there. Right. The outcast <laughs> guys are just kind of doing whatever and, they want. And Alicia yeah. is like, 
okay, everybody. Yeah. I wrote a speech. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. I love performing yeah. it. So like, I appreciate it. I thought the Tupac tribute, so she wasn't inducting, but she was performing. performing. That was, I'm like, okay. You know, I mean, it, I, I, I don't it's a know. Creative, creative idea. It was a creative idea, but it really does suggest we know three Black female artists. They are Jennifer <laughs> we'll Hudson, Alicia Keys, and Mary J. And Mary J. Mary That's J. it. Those are the three Black female artists that come that are allowed. Kristen, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. And then Audra Day, who, you know, is like the stalwart for doing just tributes at this point. So we'll see how she does playing Billie Holiday in a Lee Daniels film. The trailer just came out today, but... I have my concerns about Lee Daniels. So, and it, it, we, I think we do have to quickly mention that one of the other reasons why 2018 as a ceremony was the beginning of the end was oh, the inter, the introduction of the singles category. <laughs> oh yes. yeah, Little Stevens, Little Pet Project. Yeah, let's celebrate every song that was important to my youth. <laughs> you know? He and that and you know you talk about gatekeepers you talk about like the tastemakers of culture right. people who believe that their personal opinion is canon like yes. who believe yeah. that what yes. was important to them when they were a teenager in the 60s yes. and what would be on their desert island jukebox is deserving of yes. a place in history and yes. then their personal opinion means that, that. <laughs> being given that platform yeah, yeah total it's institutionalization it's, I mean, it would just never ever happen to a not white man. Like it no, just wouldn't. I know, like I know. Well, it would I, not. I mean, and the and the larger genealogical story that continues to be so, on the one hand, confounding and also deeply predictable is the way that he is a part of the Springsteen diaspora and the sheer dominance of the Springsteen diaspora and inside the reverence, of the, the you know, utter reverence. Every single, the... you know, if we're going to do that, then give Clarence his own induction. I mean, I think at this point, <laughs> right. why not? Yeah, yeah it's, it's the John Landau connection. It is the that John Landau connection. Really yes. is right, who was inducted this year. He sure yes. was. It's it's the Springsteen, <laughs> it's like the, the Church of Springsteen. Yeah. And again, don't get me wrong, I think Bruce Springsteen is great. I think he's a legend. I think he's very important and good. He is not the only important and good person. And everything he does is not important and good. Yeah. We we just have made it so that like you can't cut a minute of a Springsteen speech. Everyone Mm -hmm. who's associated with him is also legendary and deserving. And you can't cut a minute of their speech Mm -hmm. and they deserve to be also as important because they are in the sphere of the church of Springsteen. Mm-hmm. It's just it's, the church of Springsteen. I like that. He's it's the like too much. The Nicole Kidman of the rock hall. Like, yeah. You know. I, you know, it's funny just to think about, he has been inducted. His backing band has been inducted. Yes. His manager has been inducted. Yes. That's it's, what I'm saying. Give it to Clarence <laughs> or better yet. Give it to the pointer sisters for whom he wrote fire and fabulous yeah. classic. Oh. One of the most important. I would love R&D to do a Sisters of the 70s and 80s. And if legibility for Rock Hall nominations goes to the point of actually reproducing Rock Hall history, i.e., covering <laughs> white rock classics, you know, take a listen to their cover of Steely Dan's Dirty Work.
that, isn't it? On point. On pointer. Unintended. Sisters. Unintended. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, Daphne, one of the difficult and frustrating things about the Rock Hall is that, you know, they don't really tell us why they induct people. There's no real list of criteria that yes. they ever make public. It's yeah. kind of a guessing game. And then with certain inductees, it becomes a more confounding guessing game. Yes. But I've done my best to kind of reverse engineer a list of categories that I think if you do well enough in those categories, then you have a decent shot at induction. So we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to see how Grace Jones stacks up in the categories. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice little break there. Kristen, what do we hope they did over their break? Boy, I hope you really had just an incredibly revelatory conversation that uh, will stay between you and the people you had it with. Great. Uh, so let's talk about Grace Jones. Yes. Grace Jones uh, actually became eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001. Oh my God! Because her <laughs> first her first release was a yeah. single in 1975. And Grace Jones, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Grace Jones, uh, Daphne, how would you summarize? this artist grace beverly jones bold risk risk taking experimental musician transcendent performer she carried avant-garde spectacle and queer art world adventure and aesthetic transgression into the pop world mainstream she's an artist who broke all sorts of boundaries in the mid to late 70s post-punk new wave um, disco circles she toyed with and subverted racial and gender norms and conventions in popular music culture. She seized upon the visual and sonic language of androgyny that one associates, associates, for instance, with glam rock. And even before that, with the early rock fabulosity of the likes of Little Richard, she claimed both masculinity, I'm using scare quotes here, and a kind of arch cyborgian post-human um, kind of stylings as these categories that she could play with as a cisgendered Black woman, a Jamaican immigrant, that she would try on and dispose at will. You know, she called attention. I think the most important thing that I would kind of flag for Grace Jones, actually there are, there are many categories, but let's just, let's just call attention to the fact that she really emphasized the performativity of gender categories and social and cultural identity formations, you know, that would impact generations of musicians. Of course, I'm thinking of Madonna, the entire 80s new wave era of artists, um, all the way up to Gaga, our entire 21st century postmodern pop artifice and edge, you know, series of acts from Wrecking Ball era Miley to, you know, somebody like Halsey. We could even think about the ways that she anticipates kind of Black diasporic Caribbean pop that mm -hmm. comes to us in the, in the scintillating form of Rihanna. She paved the way for them all, right? That's kind of the most legible and recognizable way of kind of understanding Grace Jones' impact. And we haven't even talked about her close associations with Andy Warhol and her problematic associations with John Paul Goode, visually kind of collaborated with her in terms of this visual 
iconicity, but there are all sorts of other ways to kind of understand her in terms of her sonic artistry. Um, yeah. The fact that she, she covered like, you know, huge swaths of, you know, new wave and mm -hmm. post-punk music and made it her own. And there were artists like Marianne Faithful and Sting who wrote for her. She's extraordinary and she knows it. And in her, I think it's the best rock and roll memoir I've ever read. I've got it here with me. I'll never write my memoirs. I, I highly recommend this. It's a page turner. It's gossipy, but also very heady and almost scholarly in the ways that she talks about her immigrant life, about post-coloniality, about anti-Blackness, about queer liberation. She being a straight woman who kind of played with the boundaries of how we understand queerness. I could go on and on and on, but it is insane and also not surprising at all that she's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, that, that's a great introduction uh, for this segment. <laughs> and we can continue to talk about her as we go through these categories. Yes. Now I'm getting very excited to talk about her because my familiarity with Grace Jones is mostly her image. I am yeah. mostly familiar with her image. She is She has such an incredibly like impactful and iconic look. Oh, yes. yes. And yeah. I have always thought of her as just this like incredible model, otherworldly, yes. like alien androgynous right. kind of like person. Yes. And I'm really interested to learn more about her music yes. as well. So yes. I'm like getting very excited about the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah her, it, she exists as an icon. And I think specifically when you put it in the context of like the 80s, the kind of like persona 80s. Right. And it's my first exposure to her was as a little boy because she's on the Pee Wee's uh, Christmas. Oh my yes. God, I forgot that. And her place in that type of special and that type of world almost yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like you almost have like two <laughs> visually uh, striking Yes. characters in a way yeah yeah she comes well, out of a box that yes. was delivered oh my god i forgot that yeah well you're that's so true i mean you know one thinks of camp and also a kind of brechtian critique to get you know deep wonky you know Bertolt brecht being beamer republic dramatist who you know ends up forging this revolutionary theater that's focused on alienation right how do you yeah. alienate your audience so that you become aware to the artifice of life right and that was that was an anti-Third Reich move. It's, it's certainly something we continue to need now, but Grace Jones and, and P.B. Herman together were especially important to understanding the sort of neocon conservative culture and, and the rise of a kind of transatlantic conservatism in the 1980s and how weirdly pop music culture became the kind of respite to all that. Yeah. With Madonna, with, with Prince, with Michael Jackson. Very um, much so. Stones. So let's go to the first category, which is iconic slash recognizable songs. Now, admittedly to the average person, they might not know. You don't hear, I feel like Grace Jones songs that much just kind of out in the world. Uh, I would say though, to me, her biggest song is Pull Up to the Bumper. Which is an is an original. She read that right, and as you mentioned, she has a number of cover songs that she really reimagined. Yes. Uh, I, I'm thinking of Livia and Rose as a good example. Yeah. 
turning it into almost like a bossa nova right. version yeah. of an Edith Piaf song. Yeah. And then if there's if there's another one that I think people might be familiar with, maybe it's Slave to the Rhythm. Definitely. Oh, to the rhythm. So marks her historic collaborations with Sly and Robbie, who were these Jamaican dance hall icons, and Chris Blackwell, her longtime producer for over 40 years. She's been close to Chris Blackwell, who is tied into the to the new wave scene through the Pretenders and a variety of different acts from that era. She and a, a rock hall inductee for mm -hmm. you know founding yes, Island Records. And <laughs> the next category is classic albums. You know, does Grace Jones have a classic album? And if we kind of chart her discography, she started as almost like a disco artist in the late 70s and had a few sure. releases doing that. But once disco no longer was in favor, she yeah. pivoted and really the, yeah. the career that we associate with her kind of began. Her association with the Compass Point All-Stars yeah. and her three-album run, starting yeah. with Warm Leatherette, and then probably for most people peaking the pinnacle being the album nightclubbing mm -hmm. and then the third album being living my life but yeah. i would say if there is a classic grace jones album even down to the album cover mm -hmm. which it shows her she's got the flat top haircut she's giving that that grace jones glare to the yep. camera and she's got a cigarette that's pointing directly down from her dangling from her mouth and the broad angular shoulders it is iconic just just for the cover alone but also what she was doing musically and sonically in that album i think would be considered yeah. classic as well yeah that's that's a beautiful way of kind of encapsulating how her visual economy was so in line with her kind of sonic palette so the the edges are all there you know she works with yeah. that sharp edges and She's so fascinating too, I think, because you know, probably one of the arguments, if there were ever one to be made within the rock hall circles about inducting her, would be those kinds of associations with rock and roll iconography and all of the, the covers. You know, she also covered Roxy Music and Tom Petty and that makes her legible, which I find problematic that we'll have it become <laughs> legible to the canon. But, you know, to go back to remembering the fact that she's a Jamaican immigrant and that a lot of her tropes that she talks about in her memoir too are about really embracing the idea of being the stranger and really, you know, leaning into the strange, right? Which goes back to the ideas of alienation. Um, so that edginess and that sharpness is another way of claiming rock and roll's core mythography, which is subversion and disruption and resistance. Um, you know, all of that you can see both visually in what she's doing and also in terms of her sound. And then there are the diasporic sounds. I mean, let's not for forget that there's quite a bit of, you know, just dance hall aesthetics and, and reggae that are kind of almost manifest themselves as ideas in her music, as opposed to kind of actual authentic reggae. She sort of plays with those genres too. Now let's connect to the next category, which is a very gatekeepery category, which is critical acclaim. And mm -hmm. let's let's connect it with the the most gatekeeper thing in the world, which is do you guys think Grace Jones has an entry on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums list? 
no. <laughs> I'm over here. Well, I'm, they just did a redo in 2020. This is the thing, the 2020 new list. I'm pretty good at guessing these. I, I was, and then they did the re- redo. Cause I used to be pretty good. She definitely is not on the first two. She's not on 2003 and she's not on 2012. The 2020 redo there's a possibility. I don't think it's likely. I think if she is on it, she's in the like 480 plus. And I think it's for the album nightclubbing, but things got really shaken up. The 2020 list is not a Jan Wenner list. It it is a much more diverse list and it is very, very much reflective of the time. The top 100 got shaken up quite a bit. There's a lot uh, more diverse artists on the list. I still don't think, I still don't think she, I still don't think she wound up on it though. No, Grace Jones is not on the, on any (laughs) 500 (laughs) albums list. What a cliffhanger. Yeah. I mean, if you can, I was over here. Well, I was just trying to calculate, like, Like, could it have happened? Like, could she be 499? You know, who knows? But let's talk about how Grace Jones does in terms of critical acclaim. I wouldn't say that she was necessarily a darling, but I also think, though, the kind of daring nature of her work was respected critically. I also, you know, something that I've been thinking about a bit is like the fetishization of Black female sexuality. And I think about like older white men talk about Grace Jones. That feels like it is almost like it's like dangerous and exotic. Her androgyny uh-huh. is is dangerous and exotic yep. in a very homophobic culture yep. and then also in a very racist culture her mm-hmm. beauty and blackness and because she mm-hmm. is such a dark black woman yes like is very much like ooh danger yeah. you know yeah. and it's socially acceptable because she is but but like only in that way right it's like she is being boxed in in this in this way and i think i think of it in that way of like maybe critics i don't know what critics were saying about her but i can only know what i the the lens that i have seen it through mm-hmm. which has been that lens of she is this like singular alien she must be an alien because she is so right. you know androgynous and dark i i just wonder how that factored into the criticism of her or embrace of her. Yeah, I mean, my my recollection of the history of criticism that I was consuming in my teen years in the 80s um, and early 90s is that she was hardly covered at all, except as kind of a media spectacle. Um, and that, that, you know, spanned the racial pop culture spectrum, although it has, you know, a history of colonialism, which you just really encapsulated in your remarks, right? because then in terms of, you know, the fetishization of, you know, dangerous and sexually desirable commodifiable blackness, and then a kind of fascination with and mocking of it along the kind of more social propriety guidelines of black middle-class culture. You see her in a famous cameo in, in Eddie Murphy's middle-class love story, Boomerang, in which she plays a send-up of herself, of um, an older model called Stranger. So I almost think we're more like, and again, the state to me, somebody like perceived as being something like Charo, who was a Latin American fixture on mm-hmm. you know seventies talk shows, as opposed to being taken seriously as an artist. Now you know her partnership with Good, which is 
whew, man, Jean-Paul Gouda was her life partner for a period of time and also her artistic partner who also one could say her colonizer and yet she resisted that colonization. I mean, they just had a, it was a hot mess of a relationship. Again, see the memoir. Um, but <laughs> their, their collaborations were about trying to weaponize and subvert, at least on Grace Stone's part, the commodification of her blackness and her sexuality along that axis. But I don't remember reading reviews of Grace Jones albums and Rolling Stone. Yeah, so. I mean, I think uh, an album as big as nightclubbing, you know, necessitated a review, but I think anything right. before or really after didn't get a ton of attention. Really, if there's anything critically, it's almost in retrospect, like Pitchfork has reviewed the re-releases yes. and that has always been very favorable. Yes, yes. I mean, there's been a huge, I will say there's a huge amount of interest. One could call it Grace Jones studies at this point in my world of academia. I have many former students who are writing Grace Jones papers and dissertations. Gary McMillan, my former student and colleague at UCLA professor is working on a project on her. And I neglected to say, I can't believe that I left her out, but obviously I think the missing link here who has pivoted people back to thinking about Grace Jones is Janelle Monet. Um, that is one of the ones I was going to say when we were speaking earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt you, but she Yeah, well, I went on this weird Halsey leap, but I knew I was having a blind <laughs> spot. I'm like, why did I go Halsey? <laughs> of course. She is course, very yeah. much who I, and we will talk about too, like influence and like also yeah. who we think should induct her, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. I'm like, it's got to, and like, if Janelle Monae is not in the conversation about this, then we're not having the right conversation. Cause it's if you true. even like look at the, cover of her first album or her first right. wide release album it feels Arch very grace Android. jones arc yeah. android yeah right. where she's right. got all the angles and the right. space and all that stuff and yeah. i know it was about Old the movie metropolis as well but like mm -hmm. yes impact and influence i know we will that's one of the categories yeah. okay. i know we'll yeah. come to right. it eventually but like what is the next category joe the, am i skipping the next category is uh, commercial success mm. ah, okay so, you know, I feel like in America and, you know, the Rock Hall isn't necessarily an American institution, but it is kind of by default. Uh, she did not make a, a huge mark commercially in America uh, in terms of selling records. But, you know, internationally, it's a it's a different story. But I, I wouldn't position her as Where someone did who she was she popular in the UK? Was there like UK a in France, right? France. And kind of across Europe. Germany. Yeah, I would think. Well, I mean, nightclubbing, some might nightclubbing. say. Nightclubbing, <laughs> yeah. literally, right. She is legend in Black queer circles and I mean, queer circles of color and queer subcultures more broadly. And I, I think that can't be understated in terms of the importance of, or overstated, sorry, in terms of the importance of how she manifested the kinds of aesthetics of queer nightlife and transported them to the mainstream to the extent that she had any kind of crossover celebrity and also was beloved by those communities for being able to encapsulate kind of, I would argue, the post-Stonewall history of popular music culture in a way. I mean, you know, she's disco and cabaret, she's masquerade and Broadway musical She's all those things. And the fact that she, again, she's a cisgender, cisgender woman who identifies as straight, but who has, you know, birthed all of these queer allies. Let's go back to the fact that people claim that Madonna was the person who 
broke through in making queer of color subcultures legible and consumable, but Grace was there before her. I'm starting to rack up some people that I want to see at the introduction in here. Slow down. (laughs) All right. The next category is longevity. Her first album was in 77 and her first single was in 75. So she had this disco career pretty much to the date, right to the end of the 70s. And then the next phase of her career started in the 80s and then right up to 89. And those are all the her album releases. And then she didn't have another album after that until 2008. So really her run spans the entirety of the 80s and a little bit of the 70s, which I would say is a good run. And she produced a lot of interesting work during that period. That is definitely true. And we should think about what she was doing at that time when she wasn't recording albums. She she becomes a character film star in a sense. You know, she does a James Bond movie. She does Boomerang. Um, she partners up. And she did the Pee Wee Herman special. Exactly, right? <laughs> she was part of culture. She was right. like- she's a part of culture, right? And her iconicity moves beyond popular music culture itself. You know, I think it's significant again that that's those these are, you know, parallel and kind of the years of Madonna's dominance. So there's a there's a way that she begins to translate all of that energy into other spaces. I do want to also flag that that 2008 comeback, which she wouldn't call a comeback, is a really remarkable record. I mean, it is it's a record that I think should have been in top tens. It includes the track that's a, a semi autobiographical track, William's Blood that Wendy and Lisa wrote for her, you know, kind of chronicles her life as a daughter of a Pentecostal preacher and, you know, her rebelliousness. It's just, it kind of, it gives you the story of Grace Jones. She went on tour at that point. She started to think she doesn't perform Afropunk till much later, but she becomes kind of legible to the Afropunk set generation of fans at that point in a new way, in a newly felt way. Okay, next category is influence. Now we, we've touched on this already, but we, we can keep going. I mean, there's influence both what she was doing visually and then what she was doing with her music, which both. And I think somebody who hits both of those as well of, we talked about Janelle Monae as like musical and visual influence and impact. I also think RuPaul is someone that we should bring into the conversation as far as like visual stuff, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and also someone that I would love to see, like there wouldn't be a RuPaul without a Grace Jones in some ways. And we wouldn't have the, we now have like a ubiquity of, of queer culture that we didn't have for a long time. I'm sure that Ru would cite Grace Jones Mm -hmm. as like Mm -hmm. one of her main influences and thinking about like club culture in the 80s as well and how kind of queer it was especially in New York there are just probably so many artists and and also just thinking about what would have been considered like a floor filler Mm -hmm. in the late 70s early 80s and also just kind of her iconic status like she's someone Mm -hmm. I know who she is without right. even knowing. I know pull up to the bumper because I run a dance party and sometimes people will put it on their playlist. Right. But like, I didn't ever know it growing up. I've never heard it on the radio, mm-hmm. but like, I know who Grace Jones is. That's I probably saw that. It doesn't belong on the radio. It belongs deep in the club. That's yeah. a 
serious like sexual liberation, queer sexual liberation anthem, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and I just think her impact is probably the biggest, this is like her category to shine in mm-hmm. is that it wasn't necessarily that everybody knows a Grace Jones song or has a favorite Grace Jones song, mm-hmm. but it's like her existence was mm-hmm. important to things that happened afterwards. Yeah. And her you know, legacy- is yeah. you know apparent anytime you see a pop star with like a giant dress or like right. an insane hat that's like a mile long. I like mean, it- Harry Styles and Billy Porter, you know, were mm-hmm. two people I could mm-hmm. see. Harry, Harry Styles more appropriate to be inducting Grace Jones than Stevie Nicks. I can't get over that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it'd be interesting to see who would induct her because of the ways that she's thrown shade on so many people. So for instance, when... I'll never write my memoirs came out and she did a New York Times interview. She actually threw heavy shade at Janelle Monet along, you know, at the level of like Mariah JLo. I don't know her, you know. Wow. Like, yeah. So it's complicated. It is complicated because yeah. she has, when I was thinking about this, uh, she has thrown shade in that same interview mm-hmm. on everybody. Everybody. Like, to the point where I'm Please, not entirely sure on, who. Right. So it was like Madonna, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, Rihanna. It was covering the swath. I think it's fair. You know, she's the progenitor and has to sit and watch, you know, all of this flourish. Mm -hmm. And people copy her, which that was, you know, the main sticking point was like, do something original. All these people are doing things that I already did. Yeah, she actually talks about that at great length. There's a particular artist. She doesn't name her. Doris. Um, Yes. Is right. the code name? I kept trying to figure out: Is it Madonna? Is it Gaga? I think it might be Gaga. I think it's Cause Gaga because there had been person. All, there's and she <laughs> plays instruments. Yeah, there there are just many people on the internet who are trying to parse out who Doris could be because there are a lot of clues. But like, are some of the clues meant to mislead you? And uh, anyway, it was uh, fun to to try and figure it and out. This was but. in the interview that she did, or this is in her book? In her memoir. There's okay. a whole passage about this person. And about this person seeking her out for mentorship and alliance. And again, I think it's such a brilliant book because there's so many dimensions of Grace Jones on display in this book. Not only the gossipy side, which is delicious, but really thinking long and hard about what it means to be an artist and an innovator and the nuts and bolts of what goes into creating art. And she's really working as a critic to kind of take apart the pitfalls and perils of this person's repertoire and why she feels she can't help this person i mean it's heavy shade <laughs> oh wow and it's also like some gangster og super veteran kind of wisdom yeah. it's really it's a fantastic book it's 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 so fun and brilliant i would teach it i hope to teach it at some point that'd be great next category is artistry slash skill and I think Grace Jones doesn't get the credit she deserves as a musical artist when she gets a lot of credit for being Grace Jones. Yes. You know, so I like to think of um, musicianship capaciously, instrumentality, encompass- encompassing voice, as well as all sorts of other kinds of chops and virtuosity. Um, right. It's something you talk about in the book. I do. Yeah. Thank you. And I also think that, you know, the elements of, performance innovation at the level of the visual, the kinesthetic, meaning, you know, related to movement are, are super important too. And so piecing that all together, I think we could, we could talk about Grace Jones' voice, the androgyny of her voice, the ways in which that kind of cold alienation um, is something that is 
you know, there's a, a clear through line in, in rock and roll superstardom in which you see people playing with the kind of deep richness of a, a complicated and let's say not intimate kind of voicing. So I'm thinking of everybody from Bowie to Iggy Pop, right? And that actually is important in terms of innovation because it rejects the kinds of presumptions that black women vocalists are supposed to always make you feel good and be uh, effusive in really electrifying ways like an Aretha, which is so important. But you know, Grace Jones exploded the kinds of paradigms in which we understand Black women to be vocalists in pop and rock and roll. I mean, her visual act is just extraordinary. I mean, we could talk about costumes, we could talk about masks, we could talk about masks pre-COVID, just the ways yeah. that masks what? were so important, right? Oh, not just, this was like a, you know, such a big part of her stage routine, especially in the um, the post-08 comeback world in which she used masking and also just haute couture. And we didn't talk about this. This is something I forgot. I just want to flag, like Kristen, you said early on, the fact that she starts as a model. I think there's a stigma attached to that, unless you're Debbie Harry, a really problematic stigma. All stigmas are problematic. But but she kind of subverted the spectacle of haute couture. It became a part of the danger that she was able to kind of perform and stylize. And, And that ties us to punk and Vivian Westwood and, and all of that. So all of those pieces and elements put together, you know, give you this really explosive repertoire a la Bowie. I mean, I really do think she's as impactful and as innovative as Bowie and that we could think of Sly and Robbie as her Brian Eno. And you just imagine if she'd been a dude, a white dude. Oh, wait, I can because that would be David Bowie. But <laughs> yeah, I think God may he rest, he would say as well, since he was a huge champion of black women's artistry. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So we're, we've made it to our final category, maybe the most important category, which is does my mom know who they are? <laughs> and my mom absolutely did. And like we said, it's, she's kind of a ubiquitous cultural icon. I don't think my mom could name any songs, but like absolutely without, like, without hesitation was like, oh, yeah, for sure. Grace Jones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and I think yeah she just she has permeated the culture you know whether it's through being in one of the Conan movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger oh or <laughs> whether it's the music or the appearances on TV and whatever she's she's a living legend I think she really uh, is I literally just texted my mom I said Grace Jones question mark and she said oh yeah <laughs> nice that's very much a my mother answer. Yeah. And yeah. I guarantee you, she, yeah. def- I, it's like one, yeah, she's a ubiquitous figure. She is someone yeah. that everyone knows of. And I do say that the popularity of like drag race and kind yes. of, kind of queer right. and drag and androgynous right. culture has, I think, raised her profile in a right. way as mm-hmm. well, made her more of like someone that you would want to go back and look into. It's yeah. certainly been the case for me. You know, I'm yes. like, oh yeah, I'd love to know more about yeah. this very interesting and intriguing person. And mm-hmm. also a thing that we haven't really touched on just yet is that she's still alive which i think is a very, very we like that she's still alive yes <laughs> we, we like to be having this conversation alive. while she's still ha- while she's and, still alive and let's flag that sophie fines rafe fines sister is a fantastic filmmaker made a marvelous documentary 
about Grace Jones. I think it's brilliant and it really disposes of the kind of talking head documentaries. I mean, talking right. head in the sense of commentary, not talking head David Byrne. Yeah. And in that sense, it it is a manifestation formalistically of the kind of experimentalism that we come to associate with Grace Jones. It's it's not an easy film. I think it was for me very easy to digest after reading the memoir because it felt like such a beautiful extension of it. So I want to recommend both of those things. Yeah. The other thing I just want to really flag right quick is that, you know, Grace Jones, as much as I want to talk about her being this pathbreaker who explodes the scene, this originator, as little Richard would call it, she also is the repository of this much longer, unheralded, disregarded history of Black women performers who were experimentalists, who used irony in order to combat you know, racial stereotypes. So everyone from Josephine Baker, who was St. Louis born and bred and becomes a huge star in the Parisian music hall scene during the Harlem Renaissance, to somebody like Eartha Kitt, who deserves tons and tons of love letters to, who also burrowed really deep into French cabaret and then becomes a part of jazz supper club culture. And then along the same lines as Grace Jones has this kind of kishy, you know, iconicity late in her career. You know, she's playing Catwoman in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about her playing Catwoman, Tina Turner and Mad Max, and unfortunately having to remember now the Conan, <laughs> Grace Jones. Yeah. But these Black women who don't fit into these kinds of cultural representational categories that we expect Black women to fit into, who are edgy and who push convention and who critique the very notion of convention that's straitjacketed. Grace Jones is a part of that legacy and she's bequeathed that legacy to someone like Janelle Monet. Well, it's time for our verdict. Should Grace Jones be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Will she get in? And if so, when? And we'll start with Kristen. So I have been, since the very beginning of this episode, thinking a lot about my LaBelle verdict, (laughs) a thing that (laughs) I, yeah, from a few weeks ago in which I said, I just didn't know if they had had enough impact. And it's very rare for me to, because I just am like, put everybody in. I don't fucking care. I don't think this thing is real anyway. And so just like, (laughs) I just stop. And then I don't know, I guess I've I've been thinking about it since the beginning of this episode because I've been really kind of confronted with the concept of who decides what impact is made, who gets to create the canon. And the answer is like, we get to create the canon that we want. And if I can't put LaBelle in, in my Mm -hmm. ideal world, Mm -hmm. then what am I doing? And so I just reverse And so when I think about these categories that we have, they're pretty arbitrary. Joe invented them, but they're based on this also arbitrary institution. And they are meant not to necessarily evaluate someone's merits, but it's more of a reverse engineering of do they have a shot based on the system that is already in place? Exactly. And so, and I think that I have to almost decolonize my mind in that way and like be like we don't need I don't need to think of what they would do I can make my own <laughs> make right, my that's own what the, that's what the should that's what that's what the should part is about mm-hmm. and so in the should part I put Grace Jones in yes yes mm-hmm. I do I also backdoor I put LaBelle in too so just Let's have that on the It was a very shocking ending to that episode for me. And I think we've all, I've been thinking about it since we started this, especially just with the canon stuff. Anyway, should she? Yes. Will she? I don't think so. I think that we look at the institution as it stands. I think you look at the fact that Tina Turner is not in as a solo artist. You look at the fact that respect for 
her type of innovation is severely lacking in this institution. And so I don't think that there is a time. I mean, I think that people could make a case for her. I could see some people who are currently on the nominating committee putting her name out there. I could even see her possibly getting on the ballot, but I don't think that she could get in based on the current voting body, even if she got on the ballot. That just says a lot about where we're at. It's a hard time out there. And that that's just what I think. So Okay. Daphne, what do you think? Should she, will she? And if so, when? Um, should she? Absolutely. If 2020 has taught us anything, and it's taught us many things. Oh, yes. <laughs> of those many, many things, it's that Grace Jones should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, will she? I could see a scenario similar to, but it, this depends on, again, this is this is how, you know, legacy admissions works in my part of the world in university culture. But the scenario would be Joan Jett performs the induction concert for Nirvana and Chris and Dave very strategically get her He's nominated the, the, the and next year, next mm-hmm. the very next year. I mean, and that was, a, that was a brilliant move for a variety of reasons, famously, of course, because they had all women covering Nirvana, mm-hmm. taking on Kurt's vocals. So it would have to be something like that. But I mean, I do think that Grace is similar to Joan in the sense that beyond I love rock and roll, you know, Joan absolutely belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it's not her hits that are the reason why she she should be there for the people who care about her. It's what she birthed. And actually, I think that Grace exceeds Joan, and I don't want to pit them against each other, but in terms of the range of, innovation in terms of her entire performance aesthetic. It's just much more capacious and a different kind of edgy rather than edgier, I will say. Mm -hmm. That seems to matter in rock and roll culture. So Yeah, and you definitely see Grace Jones in The Artists of Now way more than you see Joan Jett. Very much so. And again, I don't want to take down my girl Joan, who, you know, held up the feminist torch when Chrissy totally broke our hearts. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, the resonances of what Grace Jones has done over the core of her career are felt in all aspects of pop now. And that's transformative. So who's it going to be? Who's going to take on the, the Dave and Chris role to push her forward? It's hard because to go back to the legacy trope, it would require another artist to is closely aligned with Grace or Grace is palpably meaningful to them to make that kind of a case. I'm not sure Janet is going to be the person to do that. Right. And we've talked before about, you know, Grace's not friends with a lot of the people no. she's influenced. No, but you, you, know. need, you need a good white ally. Like I keep going back to him. It's just his birthday and just the fifth anniversary of his death, but the great David Boy or Prince, both of whom I'm, I'm, working on an anthology of their of their careers through beautiful essays that people wrote for a conference that I held at Yale a year after they passed. So that's coming. But, you know, we really talk about them being allies to women and especially women of color. They also had all sorts of dalliance. Complicated sexual relations as well. Yes. But in terms of identifying Black women artists as being influences, you know, they're some of the biggest male superstars who just uncategorically went to the mat you know prince at the bet tribute ceremonies had all women performing and 
Patty LaBelle when she gets to the point of taking off her shoes, right? But he holds up the shoe and it's just like totally genuflecting. Or you think about how Bowie talked about Nina and Eartha and Tina as being creators along with him. And, and that's what we need. We need more of the men who are in power, male artists who are in power to actually identify and come correct about the women, not just the people of color, because we've seen how problematic that can be with the stones and everything, but you know the, the women who are so crucial to their coming into consciousness as artists. Dylan's good about that, but you know, Dylan's also complicated. So. <laughs> <laughs> it never ends. Yeah. Yes. So you, you very smartly don't see it happening without like a major push almost from the inside. Yeah. I always yeah. say, you know, there needs to be like a documentary or like a biopic. I think if we got a biopic, we could get it. Biopic Something could happen. Yeah. Wow. We, had the, we had the documentary and, but it was a little hard to digest. It yeah. sounds like. So. It was not the type of documentary that would yeah. set up an induction where it's no. like a standard biography. It is yeah. uh, Blood Lights and, and Bammy is mostly concert footage interspersed with just slice of life footage of her and her family and her recording and it's it's pretty raw and it's artistic but it's not the way that even like the nina simone documentary was very much about here is her life and her impact yeah she did that was yeah i mean that's a liz garbus that was important breakthrough work but again it ended up being about her trauma you know yes right so I think, you know, going into this episode and when you, Daphne, you brought her up in email uh, that you wanted to cover her, I was not convinced that Grace Jones should be in the Rock Hall. But after having done my research and after having talked to you in this episode, to me, it is almost like a foregone conclusion. Like, yes, absolutely. Without Grace Jones, the history of music, let alone pop, and rock, I think if you remove her, it's the stream goes in a different direction. I think she's very, very important, very pivotal. So I have steered the ship in the in the right direction. But really, <laughs> you've steered the ship, and I'm just on the ship going, hey, all right, let's do it. We're all uh, riding on that ship. Yeah. Awesome. Will she get into the rock hall? I don't think so, based on, you know, it all. Based on gestures broadly. But, you know, if it were to happen, I don't see it happening within the next 10 years. I think there would have to be a almost like generational shift of like yes. the people in power are no longer in power. And we've got maybe now we've got like the pitchfork set are in right. control of the rock right. hall versus the Rolling Stone set. And then maybe it would be uh, feasible. But at, right. at the way I see it right now, I, it, no time in the near future. But let's have some fun. Let's pretend Grace Jones is being inducted in the Rock Hall. It's happening. It's okay. happening right now. And we've played around with this, and it's tricky. Who inducts Grace Jones? Yeah, right. And who who would she want to induct her in that question? Oh, I that's the big question is who no she idea. would want. Because I'm like, who I want is I want Janelle Monet, Lady Gaga, and RuPaul <laughs> together. That would like, be really fun. It's like, I want some of them, one of them on the induction and then some of them on the, um, you know, like they could, if she, would she perform? We'll talk about that yeah. in a second. Yeah. But yeah. any of those three, I'd be very happy with. I was trying they. to look up like, you know, who she's worked with thinking mm -hmm. like maybe that's a hint as to who she likes but i don't it seems like a lot of people she worked with they butted heads like nile rogers is someone that right. she worked with and yes you know they seem to be friends going back to like right. the studio 54 days Lafreak, the yep. song was created 
because Nile right. Rodgers and, and Bernard Edwards were going to uh, Grace Jones' birthday party at yes. 54 and got turned away at the door. And then they went back and were coming up with a song with the refrain, fuck off. Yep. And then it turned into La Freak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like there's, there's when you have a history that goes back to like the early days, sometimes that can work. I was like trying to find pictures of Grace Jones with people and trying to tell if like she, <laughs> she was enjoying herself, which is... <laughs> Which is difficult because she does have that always making that face. Yeah. Uh, And and Sting, you know, I found some pictures of her with Sting, but like, I I that didn't work out. Yeah. yeah. They butted heads around Demolition Man. Right. Because she she did that that cover of that police song. I think if I'm getting this correct and then he decided to bring it back to the band so oh, yeah. and I think that that didn't work out well <laughs> and, you know she was on a gorillas song a few oh. years ago I'm gonna take you for a ride if there's any songs to get to I just don't know where I'm looking to from I'm gonna take you for a and I was like, okay, maybe, I mean, Damon Albarn Damon is not Albarn a is huge so strange. Yeah, like, but and then I was looking up at, at that and it didn't seem like they got along that well either. So it's really, it's a big question mark. The hall could do something like they did with Steve Miller, which is just pick somebody that Steve Miller doesn't like, you know, and they was that again. Wait, the, the black keys yeah. and oh, they right. did a piss poor job and yeah. then and he was mad about it from the beginning and then he, he was, was right to everything. be mad about it afterwards yeah. though uh, so, and so yeah. you know the hall could just be like no it's gonna be janelle it's gonna be right. you know alicia keys it uh, would be alicia keys unfortunately it would be alicia keys it would be Miley, no, she would not. Grace would not let she that wouldn't happen. Attend. I, that's like really... that's like a Nicki Minaj level. Like Miley and Taylor have, they're not well received in the black community for yeah. a variety of reasons. I think if Prince were alive, that would he would she would want that and he would do it. Yeah, you know, he did one other. He did one induction and it was Parliament Funkadelic and it was right. beautiful. I think he would do it for Grace. I also just want to say when you go to Grace Jones's Wikipedia page, the third sentence is Jones influenced the cross-dressing movement of the 1980s and has been an inspiration for artists, including Annie Lennox, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Solange, Lord, Roisin Murphy, Brazilian Girls, Nile Rogers, Santa Gold, and Basement Jacks. What a weird uh, smattering Assortment. of people, but that's <laughs> yeah. the third thing. Also calling it cross-dressing is a wild move a as well. That's a little bit of a throwback. Um, <laughs> right. that's, okay. a, that's a wild move. I mean, I think that shows the range of your impact. Impact. And I would stand behind most all of those, actually. I'm like, man. In fact, Solange would be somebody who would probably do an induction. And people might not make that association immediately, but given Solange's deep immersion in avant-garde, the avant-garde art world at this point, she would be a really, and, and is just a very sophisticated and savvy um, thinker about culture and politics. She, she would be amazing to induct and then if she performs what songs should she play at the induction usually they get three or four songs pull up to the bumper night clubbing do you throw in one of the one of the rock covers to kind of appease the crowd definitely maybe love is the drug Oh, that's true. That would be, yeah. 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 And that's a barn burner. That's a banger. Yeah. 
Would, is she still performing? Oh, yeah. She headlined Afropunk, the UK Afropunk, a while back. And I think she also did Brooklyn. I think I saw her at Brooklyn. I know I saw her at Hammerstein Ballroom around the time of the 08 release. She did FYF Fest not too long ago. Yeah, and, and that documentary really shows right. you how cool her yes. visuals still are yeah. uh, when she performs. To the yeah. point where I think maybe she probably wouldn't perform at an induction because they can't, the production Do value cannot what she, what she would right. want. Yeah. Now, I know you've been to two induction ceremonies. Mm-hmm. If Grace Jones got in, would you go to an induction? Yeah, <laughs> that without a she doubt. Went, she went and watched the stupid Bon Jovi induction I ceremony. Did. She's going to- <laughs> I, I mean, I've had Grace a long Jones. journey of thinking about the ceremonies. The first time I tried to go was, and I just wrote to them. I wrote to them as a cultural critic and I was a faculty member at Princeton at the time. So I was nearby and it was in New York that year. And I, I was trying to get in to see the police induction. And of course, nobody wrote me back. And I'm glad I wasn't there because I have feelings about Gwen Stefani who inducted them. Um, I have a lot of feelings. Yeah. I have a lot of feelings about that. So, you know, I think I swore never to go again, at, you know, after 2019. But if it's Grace, I'll be there. Great. If, if well, there's we'll, a world. We'll see hey, you there. I <laughs> swore that I'd end the show if Pat Benatar didn't get in last year. And, uh, you know, yet here we are. Promises are hard to keep. <laughs> Truly. Uh, well, Daphne, thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, this was really, really delight. great. The book is Liner Notes for the Revolution, which is coming out in February, yeah? It is, February 23rd. Available for pre-order? Available for pre-order on your Amazon, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> holding it down. Yeah, you could also pre-order it from a local bookstore if Wouldn't you want that to. be a great thing? <laughs> Some of my favorites, Marcus Books in Oakland and San Francisco. City Lights in San Francisco, my, my home region. Uh, anything else you'd like to you'd like to plug this is an exciting time for feminist rock criticism women of color writing rock criticism maureen mann who i don't know if she's been on your show yet has black diamond queens which is a book about the history of african-american women in rock and roll we've gotta gotta reach out yeah gotta (laughs) gotta reach out so there's it's a good moment for folks to be raising their voices as taste makers and really just kind of critiquing and opening up how we think about taste altogether. So I'm championing that. Great. That's a, I think that's a good, a good thing and a good cause to champion for sure. People can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. RockHallPod at gmail.com is the email address. If you want Kristen to see that message, you're going to need to designate that somewhere in your email. Otherwise, I'm not going to share it with her because she wouldn't want to see it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us five stars only. Anything less than five stars is rude. Why would you do that? Thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo, Yusu Kim for the music. Thank you to Pantheon Podcast for hosting us. Thank you to AKG for the microphone. I'm Joe Quazala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares about the Rock Hall? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 